Luke chapter 10, verse 25, please. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, and departing, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked upon him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thy likewise. Let's pray. Father, again, as we have said, we thank you for every one of the youth that has come out of this place this evening to go to their own church meeting. We pray, O oh God, that you would bless those who would speak and testify. And Lord, that you would anoint them for the task ahead of them. And we ask you, O oh God, that you would bless and anoint all of the leaders and use them for your glory that Lord, if there be one or some among the youth that's went out that has not yet come to the cross and been saved, Lord, that they would find themselves born again of the Spirit and washed in the blood or the leaf, that polytunnel tonight and that meeting. And Father, we turn our hearts to this place and we pray, Lord, whether it's now, live or later, people watching from wherever they watch around the world, will you give them their portion of the blessing? And Lord, for in here tonight, we pray that you would bless your people for taking out of their time to offer it up to you, Lord, that they might come under the sound of thy word and to worship your holy and your most blessed, powerful name. So, Lord Jesus, tonight, be glorified in all that is said and prayed and done and sung, and may your word find a lodging place in every heart to help us and teach us tonight. And again, if there's one here that knows not Christ, we pray, Lord, that you would bring them to a place of conviction under the word, that thy spirit, Lord, would speak to their hearts and save them for time and eternity. Lord, remember those who are weak and sickly and can't be with us. Remember those who are away. And remember Adele Lowe and her family, Lord, with Glenn tonight. We pray that you'd comfort them and draw near to them at the loss of her mother. So, Father, to that end, bless your people and encourage them, we ask. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. And for his name, we pray. Amen. I suppose if we were to say, do you know the parable of 
the Good Samaritan, most of us, maybe nearly all of us, could say, yes, we understand of the man who goes down towards Jericho, falls among thieves, and he's beaten half dead, and the Good Samaritan is likened unto the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come along and picks him up, puts him on his beast, pours in the oil and the wine, and he, he gives the man at, at the inn uh, two pence to look after him, and he says, when I come back again, Whatever I owe you, I will repay. I think we all know that. But tonight we want to focus on this evening, mostly on why he said that parable. What was the reason behind it? And what does it matter? Because as we have read in this narrative from Luke chapter 10, verse 25 onwards, he's speaking to a lawyer. And the lawyer is not a civil lawyer, really, as we would know a civil lawyer as a, a, an unsaved, ungodly man. He's, he's speaking here to a man who was a lawyer among the Jews. And he would have been an expert in the Mosaic law and in the rabbinical law. And he would have been an expert in the customs and the exercises of the Jewish faith and religion of the day. He comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man comes and he asks the Lord, Two questions. The first is in verse 25. Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Master, what shall I do? Notice the word I do. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And secondly, in verse 29, it says, but he, this is the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, who is my neighbor? What he's actually asking the Lord here is, can I deflect from my own responsibility? Can I deflect what you have told us and from mine own responsibility? The heart of this certain lawyer, as he's called in the Scriptures, the mindset and his motives start to reveal themselves before Christ. And so it's with hindsight and reading this narrative of Luke chapter 10 that we can ask the question to the lawyer like the Lord Jesus asked him in verse 26. And he said unto him, the Lord Jesus said to the lawyer, so the lawyer should know this. The Lord Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? Notice in the law. How readest thou? What do you see in the law of God? That's what he's asking him. You're a lawyer. You're an expert in the law. Now, what do you see? How do you read it in the law of God? And hence, because the man starts to deflect his own responsibilities according to the law of God, he starts to deflect it to a neighbor. What about my neighbor? Never mind your neighbor. What about you? So when we talk about the law, the Mosaic law, we talk about the, the, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments of God. You can find the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5. And you'll get them in far more of a, a, a greater 
detail them. I'm just going to run through them briefly and quickly because it's important for what the Lord asked the man. He says, what do you see? How do you read it? What do you think of the law? The law of God, that is. For example, the Ten Commandments would be like this. Number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, remember, this is a lawyer who knows this. And Jesus is saying, how do you read? What are you saying in this law? Can you say that you have no other gods before Yahweh or Jehovah, the almighty God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's saying, how are you reading this? Then secondly, it is, I shall not make any graven images. And we might even say today, well, we don't make graven images. Yes, we can see them in certain churches, and they shouldn't be there. They're idols. It's idolatry. But Jesus is asking this lawyer, and he's saying, what do you read when you read this moral law of God, the Ten Commandments? And he's saying, thou shalt not make any graven You can see them in any of them. In other words, for veneration to bow down. You can see them in Catholic churches and in Anglican churches, among maybe other places. And the Lord says, don't make them. It's idolatry. Israel themselves, when they come out of Egypt and they were in traveling or traversing through the, the wilderness, remember Moses was up the mountain. And the women took off their jewelry and their earrings. Imagine that Israelites wore jewelry and earrings. And it's when they took it off, they, they smelted it and melted it down and they made a golden calf, an image. And that golden calf is what their mind, what their hearts thought God to be. A golden calf to bow down to. A golden calf to venerate, to make a veneration of worship unto God. Why? Because in Egypt, in Egypt, one of the main gods there was Apsis, and he was a bull calf god. And it was in their heart, and it was in their mind, and it was in their thinking. Well, if that's one of the gods, and they say, this is the god that brought you out of Egypt. Later on, Israel in the northern kingdom of the ten tribes of Israel made two golden calves, placed one at Dan and one in Bethel, one at each end of the country. These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And they stopped going to Jerusalem to the temple and they started turning their hearts towards this idolatry. So God is saying to this lawyer, how do you read this? What do you see in this? And take note then, the, the third one is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And when we think of this, not to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You and I would tend to think of the lines that, well, I know that I won't take the name of the Lord our God in vain, so I won't use flippantly the name God, G-O-D, or Jesus. And I won't say it in a, in a sort of a, a loose fashion, but that's not the real meaning of this. By all means, do not take the name of the Lord in the sense like that, but that's not the full meaning of this. What God was saying is in Exodus 19, he was going to be married unto ancient Israel. And there at Mount Sinai, they were not allowed to come to the foot of the mountain. Moses is up the mountain and he brings, and notice, two tables of the law. We're going to look at it in a minute. He brings the two tables of the law. 
the moral law, the code work of God. And the Lord says, if Israel will do, then I will be their husband and husband unto them. Moses brings it to Israel and they then say, all that the Lord hath commanded, we will do all the Lord says we will do. And hence they're married. And three days later, God comes down upon the mountain. He says, sanctify the people for I'm coming down in three days. And what happens? He, he then comes and he marries Israel at the Mount Sinai. And when it says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, this is what he was saying. When you take my name, live up to my name. Don't take it lightly or with vanity. It means when you take my name, Israel, ruling with God, prince with God, with El, he says, then you're my wife and I'm your husband. Live up to my name. Just like when we are now the bride of Christ in the new covenant. We're not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And we are to what? We are Christ's ones. Christians, we are not to take his name in vain. We are to live up to his name. Live up to the name of Christ. And notice here then, and the fourth one is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember to set this day apart. Even the Lord's day now is, it's a holiday, not a holy day. It's a, it's a sports day. It's a partying day. It's a, a day for an extra day of shopping and commerce. And we could go on and on. And the Lord said that one day the Sabbath was to be set apart. Now, we worship on the Lord's day. I still believe Saturday, as it were. It doesn't always fall on the Saturday, by the way, if you do a lunar calendar. People think from... If you take Saturday off, you keep the Sabbath. Listen, the Christian Sabbath is the Lord's day. But there are lunars, moons, and quarter moons, and half moons, and you have to measure. If you want to do it right, you have to measure by those measurements. And it always can fall, it can fall, pardon me, on a Wednesday. It goes by the, it's not going by our weekly calendar before we get into more talk about these things. We worship the Lord Jesus because the disciples met on the first day. We worship the Lord Jesus because he rose again from the dead on the first day. We follow the Lord Jesus because of the apostles. They, they were breaking in bread and in fellowship with the prayers of, of, of the people all together on the Lord's day. I still believe the Saturday or if you want the day of the other day is, is the Sabbath. But we rest on the Christian Sabbath as it were. And our nation was founded on these things and built on these things but look at how it is now. In fact, Saturday can be more busy than, or pardon me, a Sunday can be more busier than a Saturday. So that is one God made four commandments, and that is between you and God, me and God. Now, Jesus is saying to this man, what about the law? How are you reading this? What's it saying to you? Stay with me. One table is between you and God. It's vertical, up and down. Man and God, God and man. It was between Israel and God. It's between you and I and God. And then the next six commandments are between, they are horizontal. 
They're between man and man. For example, honor thy father and thy mother. Number six, thou shalt not kill. And the word kill should really be murder. Murder. Because God says that if someone slays someone with, uh, uh, innocently, then it was an eye for an eye and they were to be put to death. There's innocent blood being shed in our land. God sees the slaying of the innocent blood. Thou shalt not murder. There's innocent blood shed from both sides of our community. And God will require it. God will require it. Notice this. Then he says in seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. And some may and some may not be able to say, phew, I don't at least haven't committed that one. But here's the thing. Jesus said, if you look at a woman or a man with lust in your heart, you're already an adulterer at heart. You're already an adulterer at heart. He says, I shall not steal. I'm sure we have taken things that in the past were, which maybe it wasn't ours to take. Even the slightest and the smallest of things. So Jesus is saying to this man, how do you read this? And how do you see this? And what do you think of this? I shall not kill even. The Lord says, if you hate your brother in your heart or your sister in your heart, see if you hate that person in your heart without uh, uh, having a righteous anger, then you've committed murder in your heart. You're a murderer in the eyes of God. And so number nine is, I shall not bear false witness. I'm sure maybe some of us have been in a, a conversation where we have told exaggerated truths, but they're not exaggerated truths, they're lies. Because anything bar absolute truth is a lie. Our mouths drip with it because there's one side, there's another side, and there's a truth in the middle, people say, and the only absolute truth is this. You see how far short we're falling? Can you see how far short we've fallen away? Not only exaggeration, but I'm sure we've lied outright at times also. And then lastly, thou shalt not covet. And of course, it means covet means you, you should not in your heart want your neighbor's house or land or wife or car if you want modern days. You see, these six are horizontal. God has set them in the nation to be horizontal, that we would look after one another. So, first four are vertical. We're before God, between man and God. The next six are horizontal. They are between man and man before God. Not just be between man and man, because if that's the end of it, then where is the moral code and conduct? Your morals, my morals might be different. You might think in your morals that it's all right to watch a certain thing on television and I think it isn't. Or my morals might say it's all right to go somewhere and yours might say it isn't. So where is the plumb line and the moral code? That's why without Christ in the nation, that's why we have this, uh, such terrible and abominations happening in our land. 
Because the law of God is no longer standing among the politicians. It's no longer being used by government to lead the nation. And even in the law, where the judges even are, what is happening? Sure, they're getting a slap on the wrist and, and they're told to go on. They're all right. From the most heinous crimes, from murder to terrorism. I think of those who have ruined the lives of young children and rapists. What do they get? A few years and let go? See this word? You know what it says about the pedophile? Be better he wasn't even alive. Be better the millstone was hung around his neck and he was cast into the depths of the sea. That's not very Christian. The Lord Jesus Christ said, how do you read this? How do you read this? Take note of this. Before God and his word horizontally, six commandments between ourselves before God. And we will answer unto God. Will you turn with me to Matthew 22 briefly and keep Luke 10, your finger in Luke 10, please. Matthew 22, with you. Matthew 22. Flick with you. Notice what it says here. Let your eye, if you will, run down. To verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him. Notice the lawyer here again, tempting him, saying, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Notice the answer of the Lord Jesus. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments. In other words, he encapsulated the first four commandments between God and man into one. If you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, although other place says strength as well, but if you and I really love him, then the other three fall into place. If you really love him, then we won't make any graven images. Then we won't take his name in vain then we will have a day where it's set aside to worship him because we love him. He says, that's the first commandment because it encapsulates the first four and the second is like an unto it. Notice, it's like an unto it. It's not a lesser. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In other words, if, if you love your neighbor, then it's because you love God. It's because you love God. And so that's between ourselves. Can you see how these two tables of stone that Moses brought down, Jesus says, how are you reading this in the scrolls? What do you think of this in the scrolls? So go back with me, please, to Luke 10. 
verse 28. And he said unto him, pardon me, verse 27. And he answering said, so the, the lawyer now this time is asking Jesus, answering Jesus, pardon me, his question. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. Notice, and thy neighbors thyself. That's the 10 encapsulated together in the one verse. Notice the reply of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said unto him, thou hast answered right. Now notice, thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. If you're able to keep this 24-7, seven days a week, if you're able from birth right up until death, you will have eternal life. But guess what? We're born with a sin nature and we can't. Did the Lord give us an impossible task that we should just forget about the law? And the answer is no, by no means. But what the Lord has done has shown us, revealed to us how much we need a savior. How much you and I need a savior. How much we need saved. And there's not one man on the earth that ever lived can help us bar his own son. Keeping the law to its fullness and in its entirety is impossible for us. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, Galatians 3 and verse 24, Paul tells us, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. Notice, the law was our schoolmaster. In other words, the law was doing something before we got saved. The law's purpose before we got saved. The law was our schoolmaster. And what was that? To bring us unto Christ. To bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. You know what to do in Luke chapter 10 when the, when the lawyer tries to justify himself? Underline justify himself. To justify himself. Here Paul tells us, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. That is trusting in Christ. Trusting one he has accomplished in what he has done for us. I see the word schoolmaster. I want to help you with this. I've said it before. Some might remember it. It's a big Greek word called piatagogos. Okay? Piatagogos. And when someone in this day in Greece and around the Mediterranean area and around the, the the Holy Land, as it were, known. If they had enough money, they had someone that was like a tutor. And this tutor came and lived with them, walked the children to school, as it were. They taught them how to conduct themselves. They taught them how to act. They taught them etiquette. They taught them the word or whatever it was. They, they brought them up to live the way the parents, the father, the mother wanted them to. They were like a student in the afternoon. But instead of going to school, uh, uh, from nine till whatever it is in, in the afternoon, three or four, uh, the children go uh, in the afternoon. Instead of going to a school to be taught there by classroom 
It's by classroom. These people basically live with them 24-7, and they were called the pedagogos. That's where we get our word pediatrics from. And Paul's saying the law, all that we have read out, was our pedagogos. It was to tell us how to live before God. It was to tell Israel how to live before God. It's to tell our nation, our people, how we should live before God. And guess what? They take it out of schools. They take it out of universities. They take it out of colleges. They tear it down from buildings, from government civic buildings. They take it out of the way. You know why? Because when they read it, they realize that they're a sinner before God. That's why they don't want the Ten Commandments because they realize they're a sinful before God, a sinful people with sinful ways. Paul is saying that the law came along beside us and said, I shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And we have it in our hearts and minds thinking about it. And the, Lord, the law came along and, and it says, I shalt not take unto thee the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor thy father and thy mother. And so on and so on. And we were going, guilty, guilty, guilty. Thou shalt not kill or murder. In other words, Jesus was saying, if if you're angry with your brother or you hate him in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you've looked at someone else with lust and and intent, then you're, you're an adulterer. Do you know what Jesus was saying? I haven't done away with the law. I'm amplifying it to show that you're even worse than you think you are. Jesus was saying, you're even worse than you think you are. It's not about, well, I didn't murder, at least I've kept something. Or, or I have never committed adultery, but at least I've done something. Or, well, I don't think I've ever stolen anything, so at least maybe I'm not a thief. But standing before God on that day, all will be revealed, and every heart, and every mind, and every soul, every man, every woman, every person, God will show it to those who are not in Christ. But how would you stand before him? Guilty? Guilty? Or innocent? Guilty or innocent. Brothers and sisters, you see, we are justified by faith because we cannot do what the law commands us to do. We fail at it. Romans 3 and 23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Justified means to render righteous, to declare righteous, or to regard as innocent. And when God sees me and you who are saved and trusting in Christ, he sees us washed, he sees us cleansed, he sees us purged, he sees us purified, and he declares us not guilty. And he says, you're innocent? What a rotten, filthy, guilty, hell-deserving sinner. Like this man, he says, yes, you are innocent. Not guilty. Now, Jesus has this lawyer come up, one of those really smart, intelligent, pointy-headed men that come up and say, well, now, what is the, the 
greatest of the commandments. Sometimes even in church you get that, don't you? You just feel like saying, go away. Don't you? Brothers and sisters, this man comes and Jesus says, will you tell me the law? How are you reading it? How do you see it? Because I'm going to tell you something. You're even worse than you think you are. You think you're justified by what you do. And it says that he tries to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? You know what he's doing? Deflecting. He's deflecting because he knows he's guilty. He's deflecting away from himself to someone else. Do you ever get you're talking to someone, you know that guilt is hanging out of them, you know? You know they, oh, these, this person is guilty of this crime. It is hanging, dripping off them. And you know that, and you're looking at them, and you're going, hey, you don't realize I know what you've said. <laughs> and when you get close to the knuckle, they say, I bet, did you see your man over there? Isn't it terrible what he done? That's what the lawyer was doing. Who is the neighbor then? It's not that he cared for a neighbor. And, and, and in this, he's actually thinking along the lines of someone who was a Hebrew or from an Israelite background. Who is the neighbor then? But he willing to justify himself in verse 29 said unto Jesus, who is my neighbor? Listen, James 2 and 10, James 2 and 10 says, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in He's guilty. In one point, he's guilty of it all. He's guilty of it all. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Galatians 5, 3 and 4, listen to what Paul says. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised to do the whole law. In other words, they're trusting in circumcision of the flesh, trusting in a religion, trusting in their own works. Listen, I've been circumcised as a child and look, I'm, I, I'm keeping the law. Of course I'm righteous and they float around with a head on them that they think they are something. And Jesus is saying to, the, to this lawyer, how do you read? Because you're worse than you say you are. In other words, Jesus was saying, don't you come to me with that. I know your heart. I know you. And Paul is saying, if you testify, he's testifying to every man that is circumcised. In other words, if, if you're going to do, because uh, these Galatians uh, were also Israelites. And he says, you're, you're circumcised of the flesh, then do the whole law. You keep it. And then in verse 4, he says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law. Notice, if you think you're justified by the law, then Christ has become of no effect. And he says, you're fallen from grace. Now, people tend to think that if we come to God on the basis of our own keeping of our own law keeping, we must keep the whole law or our keeping must be perfect or without blemish or spot. And so, well, maybe we'll try it. 
We can try as much as we like, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is the transgression of the law of God. So here's what I've written here. One line. No amount of obedience makes up for one act of disobedience according to the law. No amount of obedience makes up for one act of disobedience according to the law. James says if you keep the whole law, you offend in one point, you're guilty of it all. It doesn't matter if we say, you know what, ah, I dropped the ball or I didn't love you all the time, Lord. I dropped the ball or I did think lustful thought, Lord. Oh, I dropped the ball, Lord. I, I remember I did steal when I was younger. Oh, I dropped the ball, Lord. I was angry with that man and, uh, and even in my heart I'd, I'd committed murder. But you know what? I'm going to do good to make up for it. The Lord says, that's not how it works. It must be expunged. It must be cleansed. It must be put away from you. Well, Lord, how do I do that? Well, my son died for you. Then receive him. That's what it means. These people were saying, we're circumcised of the flesh and, you know, we're going to keep the law. And Paul says then, Christ has become of no effect to you. And he says, you are not justified by grace, but of the law, and you are fallen from grace. Look, Fallen from grace, if sometimes we think if a Christian, a believer, uh, and is doing well, and they suddenly, they sort of don't come to church for a while, and suddenly they start to go into the world a bit or whatever, uh, and maybe even they fall into the world and they walk away from the Lord, we say, oh, they've fallen from grace. They've fallen from grace. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. Fallen from grace means that these people were relying on their own efforts. Relying on their own law, keeping for salvation. Fallen from grace meant they weren't relying on the grace of Christ for salvation. That's what it means. I think of sometimes people who would talk to me during the week and say, Pastor, I couldn't. I couldn't even break bread on Sunday morning. And I said, well, why? Well, I thought this or I said that wrong or I was wrong or whatever. And my heart smote me. Well, that's good because then you know God's working in you. If you weren't weren't convicted by it, I'd be more concerned for you. But I didn't break bread because I felt I couldn't. Listen, brothers and sisters, when Paul talks about breaking bread and when Paul talks about drinking from the cup, He says, many sleep. In other words, many die prematurely because they do not partake of the the bread because it's by grace, not by your works. Examine your heart before God. Oh, Lord, I'm terrible. I repent of it. Then take the bread, he says, and take it and eat it. I'll have to do a study on it sometimes. This means... We are fully relying on the grace of God even when we come to the table. Can I say something? I don't mean to offend so many here tonight. I don't mean to offend all of you. But There's not one of us deserve to be at the table. Not one. 
because we're here by through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I better round this up. I haven't even got to the parable, but I'm going to do it next week. Do you know there's a prophetic word in that parable? There's a, a, a word about the state of scattered Israel in that parable. Uh, there's a, a time scale in that parable. There's a second coming in that parable. Maybe next week, God willing, we'll look at this. I rely on trust in what Christ has done at Calvary. And I come to him and put my full trust and hope and faith in him alone. Even though I'm unworthy, even though I'm unable in myself for salvation to save myself, and even though I'm unjustified in my own flesh, even though I am all of these to do so, but nonetheless, brother, nonetheless, sister, Christ bids me come. Christ bids you come. The Father receives me and declares me and you righteous. The Father regards me innocent. The Father renders me justified and in right standing with him because I am found in Christ. Because I'm found washed in the blood by faith I am justified, just as if I'd never sinned. And you're the same, just as if, if you're in Christ, you had never sinned. Now that's grace. <coughs> Excuse me. I love this. Puritan Henry Smith, listen to this. Puritan Henry Smith said of Christ, he hideth our righteousness with his, pardon me, he hideth our unrighteousness with his righteousness. He covereth our disobedience with his obedience. He shadoweth our death with his death that the wrath of God cannot find us that the wrath of God cannot find us. If you're not saved tonight, the wrath of God is still on you, friend. But you see, all of those things, I, I'm hiding in Christ. I'm hiding in Christ. And his wounds are my hiding place. I run and hide in the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. In my troubles, I run and hide in the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. In my problems, I run and hide in the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. With all of my failures and faltering and fallings, I run and hide in the wounds of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, I'm hiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, hiding in thee. I'm hiding in thee, thy blessed rock of ages, I am hiding in thee. I'm hiding that the wrath of God cannot find me. Did you hear that? I'm hiding that the wrath of God cannot find me. 
So in Luke 10 and 29, it says of this lawyer, he willing to justify himself. <laughs> we know justification means to declare innocent, not guilty, as I said. But I thought I'd look up just a simple dictionary, and I looked up Webster's, Merriam-Webster's dictionary on justifying one's self. Justifying oneself. And this was one of the simple explanations. Simply put it like this. To provide an explanation for one's actions. To provide an explanation for one's actions. <laughs> Do you see on that day when I stand before him at the Bema seat? Not the great white throne judgment because I'll not be there. That's where the ungodly and the sinners appear. That's where the unsaved appear. And I stand before him at the Bema seat. There are some things I'll answer. I'll answer because, oh, for my service, not my salvation, my service. And so will you, Christian. Not to lose your salvation now, but maybe to lose reward. And that the great white throne judgment, the unsaved will need to provide an explanation for their actions. And it's not even their actions. How much did you drink or how much did you smoke or how much did you gamble or how many partners had you throughout the, the years of your life or whatever, whatever, whatever. No, it's not really all of that. He knows all of that. Here's the explanation you're going to need standing before God on that day. What have you done with my son? Now, what's your explanation? What have you done? I gave my son. Now, what's your explanation for you've rejected him? How can one justify themselves when we've all failed? We've broken the law. Christ kept it for us and offered grace. Offered to us the nail-pierced hand of love and grace. William Sacker, another old Puritan, says, by the law which God rules us, is as dear to him as the gospel by which he saves us. God's law is so important to him, it stands forever. It's the, it's the benchmark of men and women. It's the measuring rod. It's the canon by which he will judge men and women, innocent or guilty. We're all guilty. But just as important as the gospel of of them sending off his own son to die for us. I close with this. I'll maybe pick up on it next week again. Let me get another drink, please. I feel like a chicken in Moy Park up here. It's so warm. Listen to the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5 and 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He fulfilled it for us. And the word kataloo is the word for destroy, and it means to utterly overthrow the law. He didn't come to utterly overthrow it or to destroy it. In fact, this word destroy or kataloo 
It's used for the law, to destroy the law, twice in the New Testament, of the temple in Jerusalem, six times, of Jerusalem and its customs. It's used also one time. And it's used of the body in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. Paul uses it, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, this body of ours, were dissolved, we have a building of God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. Paul says, this tabernacle will be dissolved. It's the same word for destroy the law. Paul says, in other words, should Christ tarry, you'll go to the grave and I'll go to the grave. And should it be a long time, we will be dissolved or destroyed in the ground. The body will be destroyed. That's the idea, the strength of this word. But Christ came and says, think not that I am come to do this to the law. People think the law's all done away with. No, it is not done away with. And I'll prove it to you. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, the Lord promises a new covenant made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It is mentioned in Hebrews 8, verses 7 to 13, and it is mentioned in Hebrews 10, verses 16 and 17. And he says, I will not bring the law on tables of stone like I did before, but rather, he says, I'll write it in your hearts and your minds. Where's the law of God now? It's in your heart, believer. It's in your mind. And the Spirit of God who lives in you, he lives in you, and he keeps us in check. Listen to Hebrews 10, verses 16 and 17. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. This is, what is this covenant? This is the covenant of blood. This is the, the blood of the everlasting covenant of Christ and the cross. This is when we do break bread. He says, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And he also takes of the cup. This is Calvary. And he says, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. Notice, on their sins and their iniquities. Their sins and their iniquities. Their sins is the word harmartoria. And this is what it means. You ready? Wandering away from or violation of the law of God. Their sins is the wandering away from or the violation of the law of God. And it means they miss the mark because they're away from God. And by the way, whenever Paul says in Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, coming short means you've missed the mark. It means you have broken the law of God. So we're guilty before him. And the Lord says that sin-breaking, or pardon me, law-breaking sin he says, their sins and their iniquities. What does he say? Their sins and their iniquities. Well, I remember no more. No more. By the way, the word iniquities means one of, out of condition with the law. That means a lawless one, one who is lawless. Lawless against the Ten Commandments. And he says, see all of that sinning that it spirals down and brings, look, sins are the fruit in your life. See the sins, Christ died for our sins. Yes, he did, but he came and he shed his blood for his own elect. It says he went to the very root 
Sin is the root. Sins are the fruit. Sin is the root. It's in our depraved nature. And the sins is the fruit that comes from it. We can't help ourselves born with it in our very members, our mortal frame. We can't help ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Jesus says, you're worse than you even think you are. So how are you going to get to heaven? And how will you be in God's glory? And how will you be saved? Christ came. Christ came down. And in the parable of the good Samaritan, it says he came. The man lying half dead, it says he came to where he was. We'll look at it more next week. He came to where he was. The man was half dead, couldn't turn around, couldn't pick himself up, couldn't help himself. But the good Samaritan came to where he was. Glory, Christ came to where you were. He came to where you were, where I was. He came to me. He came to me. When I couldn't come to where he was, he came to me. That's why he died on Calvary. When I couldn't come to where he was, then he came to me. He came to me. He came to me when I couldn't come to where he was. He came to me. That's why he died on Calvary when I couldn't come to where he was, he came to me. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he magnificent? The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Glory to God. Oh, he came to where you were. He found me bleeding and dying on the Jericho Road and he poured in the oil and the wine. Caroline, do you know that one? Come on up and play it, would you? Come on up and play it. And he poured next week in the Lord's will. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Next week in the Lord's will, we'll go into the next chapter, or the next part of the parable. That's why Jesus gives this parable. How do you see it? How do you read it? You're a man of the law. You understand these. Tell me about it. And he tries to justify himself. And Jesus says, hold on a minute. You hold on a minute. Oh, glory to God. I'm telling you, I could jump over that pulpit onto that table and spin in my head and spit nickels at the same time. Oh, the power of the blood and the Christ who redeemed us. Who, who knows that song? He poured in the oil and the wine. Have we got it? Jillian, oh, glory to God. Let's play it, Caroline.